message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. It's good to be with you this morning. Like Daryl said, my name is Jeff Bagwell. If you follow Major League Baseball, there was a baseball player for the Houston Astros several years ago that was really popular named Jeff Bagwell. Is that you? That is not me. Same name, different bank account. Um, it was funny. I uh, was, happened to be at a church in Texas around the time that uh, Jeff Bagwell was real popular and uh, kind of his highest popularity. And so um, the pastor, I, I went to speak at a church in Houston, Texas, and the pastor announced that Sunday morning after church that Jeff Bagwell would be speaking Sunday night at the service. So bring all your friends and come back. Well, I get there and the pastor is like, wow, we have a great crowd tonight. There's all these people here. And I said, did you tell them that Jeff Bagwell is coming to speak? And he said, yeah. And I said, they think it's the baseball player. <laughs> and his mouth just hit the floor. And he's like, oh. And uh, sure enough, he looked out, and they were in Astro jerseys. And they had bats and balls and gloves and all this stuff to autograph. So he had to go out there and tell people it is Jeff Bagwell's just not the baseball player. So anyway, that, uh, but then he retired, and I didn't have a good opening anymore. So I can, I can only use that a few more times, and I'm going to have to let that one go. But uh, I... I uh, have a wife named Kelly. We've been married for 21 years. We have twin boys, Zach and Nathan. They are autistic. And uh, so I have twin autistic boys who are going into high school. So you have autism and adolescence, and that's an interesting mix. And so we're learning. And, uh, but it's been an interesting perspective because uh, when we started Phoenix seven years ago, Brian and myself, our focus was brokenness. As a matter of fact, the name Phoenix comes from... Uh, out, of the, out of the ashes, God brings something beautiful. The, the bird, the official bird of the city of Atlanta is the phoenix because after the Civil War, Atlanta was burned primarily. And so they adopted the phoenix that they were going to build a beautiful city out of the ashes. And just as our lives are broken, and we're all broken. We all make mistakes and we fail and life breaks us. And out of that brokenness, then God brings up and raises up something beautiful. And so that's the whole idea behind phoenix, that that we have like brokenness, that we share our brokenness, so we're open and honest about that. And so that's where we come from, and if you have more questions about the coffee and everything, we can talk about that afterwards. We'd love to talk to you more about that afterwards. But uh, I, was, uh, I was born and raised in Miami, Florida, and uh, so in Miami, Florida, there's a lot of outdoor activities. Horse racing happens to be one of those outdoor activities. There are a lot of horse racing tracks down the South Florida area. So as a kid growing up, I, um, I paid attention to horse racing, I wasn't betting on horses or anything. I was just paying attention. I just enjoyed watching the horses run. Just to let you know, this is, you know, Baptist. Sometimes you have to be careful. You have to define the line there. But I was interested in horse racing. And so I followed it through the years, and I've, I've followed it all the way up. And many of you probably know yesterday was a big day in the horse racing world. I don't know if any of you followed the story of California Chrome. Uh, California Chrome um, tried to, to run for the Triple Crown and tried to be the first horse in 37 years to win the Triple Crown. And it fell, fell short, came up fourth place, tied for fourth place yesterday. Very difficult to do, very difficult to do. But I, I just enjoy horse racing stories. And I remember back as a little kid watching horse racing, and, and I remember as a four-year-old, and I don't have many memories from back then, but I remember as a four-year-old watching this great horse named Secretariat. Have you ever heard of the horse Secretariat? Some of you are like, yeah. Secretariat's considered the greatest race horse of all time, and, uh, and, and rightfully so. Just a phenomenal horse, what the horse has done. Many records still stand today. But there was a horse also that raced around Secretariat's time, and that horse was Sham, S-H-A-M. Has anybody ever heard the horse Sham? So Yes. A few people might have heard the horse Sham. Sham is the horse that came in second to Secretariat. Now, 
I just wanted to read to you just a little bit about Sam because Sam's an incredible horse. Nobody remembers Sam. All they talk about is secretary, but Sam did some great things. Sam finished second in the Kentucky Derby. As a matter of fact, he led most of the race until the last 200 yards when Secretariat uh, forged ahead and won by two and a half lengths. Secretariat set the uh, Kentucky Derby record that year. He was the first horse to run the uh, Kentucky Derby in under two minutes. And, uh, and right behind him was Sham. Sham was the second fastest horse in Kentucky Derby history. Nobody knows that. Well, they go on. They go on to race in the Preakness. Same thing happens. Secretary beats Sham by two and a half lengths. Uh, they set a course record, and Sham is the second fastest horse at the Preakness racetrack behind Secretariat. They go on to Belmont, the final leg of the Triple Crown. If any of you have seen the movie Secretariat, the Disney movie Secretariat, great movie. If you get a chance to watch it, it's a great story. In that movie, you'll see the trainer for Sam say, we're going to come out of the gate and we're going to run full speed because we do not think Secretariat can keep up with Sam because the Belmont is a mile and a half race, whereas the other ones are a mile and a quarter. So they thought Secretariat would fade at the end. So they decide to shoot out and they go out to the lead. And it's Secretariat and Sham running for the first half of the race. And they get halfway through the race and all of a sudden Sham runs out of gas and begins to fade and begins to fade. And many of you have seen the famous photos. You've watched, maybe watched the video before you've seen it played. with Secretariat winning by 31 links, 31 horse links and finishing. Sham ends up finishing dead last just ran out of gas in that race. And, and, and here's my point to it all. Sham would have been a great horse had he run any other year besides 1973. You would have heard of Sham. Chances are he would probably be a Triple Crown winner. But because he ran against Secretariat, <laughs> he is, he's forgotten. But he still did great things. But guess what? His greatness was only second best. His greatness was only second best. He could, not, he could not do any better than what he did, and yet nobody's going to remember him, and it's going to be second best. And I, yeah, and I feel that way. I mean, don't, don't you feel that way at times when you, when you do things and you feel like you're, you're, the best you can do is not good enough? I mean, maybe you're there at work. Maybe you're there in your job, and you, you have a job, and, and you're at work, and, and you're working extra hours, and, and you are even neglecting your family just to try to get the job done and get ahead, and you're just not getting the recognition you deserve, or the job is not getting done, and you just feel like, I'm giving my best, and yet I'm not getting the desired outcome. I mean, maybe it's in your family. Maybe you're a mom or a dad, and you're parenting, and you're doing everything you can to parent your child, and, and it's all you can do, and yet it's just not good enough for some reason. It's just not, it's your best, but it's not good enough. And the world is like that so many times. I feel like the world, especially in this competitive world that we're in, I, I coach football um, at a little small private school in Gainesville called Lakeview Academy, and we're a small little school, and we don't have a lot of speed. We don't have a lot of athletes. We don't have a lot of numbers. It's kind of hard to be very good and competitive when you've got all that going against you. And so in this competitive world of sports, especially of high school sports, I feel like sometimes our kids, I, I hurt for them because I know they're giving their best. That's all they've got. And yet it's not good enough. They still don't get the win. They still don't win the game. You know, it's not what they want it to be for their football season. Yet they're giving it their all. They're giving it their best. And so I try to encourage them. But yet I hurt for them because I relate to that. I relate to that. I, I'm, I'm so competitive. I'm, and, and I grew up 
doing athletics, and so I find myself just really competitive and wanting to compete and feeling like I've, I've got to win, I've got to be the best. And, you know, growing up in North Atlanta, I mean, North Atlanta's like that. It's got to be the best. You're always driven. You're always trying to compete and, and outdo the other person. And so the reality is, is only one person can win. Only one horse is going to win the race. And everybody else is going to finish second, third, fourth, and fifth, and so on. And in life, that's going to happen. We're going we're gonna to give our best and still fall short. We're going to feel like we're just not good enough. I'm, I'm just not good enough as a dad. I'm just not good enough as a mom. I'm just not good enough as, and you fill in the blank. I mean, we struggle with that sometimes. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm being honest with you, and that's something we do at Phoenix. That Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I have it all together. I struggle, and I make mistakes, and I admit that freely. I'm, I'm learning in, in my life journey of, of how to, to follow God and live the life that God's called me to live. But I do. I struggle with this sometimes. Of, you know, can I do this? I mean, this, this morning praying, I was like, God, am I, <laughs> am I good enough? Am I qualified enough to stand in front of these people and share with them? I felt so inadequate this morning to come before you and share God's word. But the great thing is, is God's going to speak to you. God's going to speak to you through his words. And his, his, you know, his Holy Spirit's going to be the one speaking. And so I have to realize that and just back up and get out of the way and understand that it's not about me. It's about God. And that God is all about taking second place. God's all about taking people who are broken and using them to do incredible, life-changing things. I mean, if you read the Scripture, it's all in there. <laughs> I mean, from the very beginning, it happens with the disciples. I mean, the disciples were not the best of the best. They were the leftovers. I mean, they were not what people considered to be the best people to take God's message to the world at the time. As a matter of fact, I want to give you a little background about how rabbis were chosen back then and how the religious establishment at the time, the Jewish church at the time, decided who would be the ones that would represent God and take their message to the people. And uh, it's very interesting but uh, back in, in Jewish time, remember first century, you know, it was the, the first century Jewish church would, would, when Jesus was coming on the scene, you had rabbis that were teaching God's word. And so there was this process they went through. And the education system in the Jewish system at the time is all the kids about eight years of, old, eight years of age went to school. Um, and they were taught the Torah. They were basically taught the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And that's what they were taught. And from eight to ten... They would, they would learn these first five books called the Torah. And Torah in, in, in Hebrew means teaching. Uh, and, and it was to teach them. And so they would, they would memorize it. They would memorize the first five books of the Bible. And that's how, they, that's how they would go. That was their education system. So by the age of ten, and that, that first part was called Bates Affair. They called it Bates Affair. It was that first two years of training. So by age ten, what the rabbis would do is they would look at these kids and go, hmm. I think this kid's got it, and so he's going to continue on his education, but I don't think that kid, that kid, that kid, that kid, that kid, that kid. And, you know, just, they can't, they don't have it. So we're just going to let them go, and they're going to go back, and they're going to learn the family trade. They're going to learn the family business. They're going to go back and do all that. Well, the kids that they thought might be able to do what the rabbi did, they were, they were invited to continue on in their education. And from ages 10 to 14, they memorized the rest of the Old Testament, from, from Joshua through Malachi. So by age 14, if, if they had been studying and doing what they were supposed to do, they will have memorized the entire 
Old Testament, word for word. I mean, that's amazing. I can't remember memorize a couple of verses. I forget just a couple of verses. But they memorized it. And that was called Beit Talmud. That was what, that's what that period of time was called. So then the rabbi would look and he would take those group of kids and go, now, only, only certain of these kids are going to be able to make the cut and go on because the Jewish rabbis at the time wanted the best of the best to take God's message to the people. And so they would begin to choose just one or two of these young kids to continue on. And, of course, what they would say to the other kids is, hey, you've done a great job, continue learning the scripture. Maybe you can come and follow after me and, and continue to learn what I do. But they would let them go, and most of those kids would end up going back to the family business, learning the family trade. So this was the learning process. This is what was going on in first century Galilee when Jesus comes on the scene. Now, what would happen is, for those kids that the rabbi thought would be the best of the best and would make the cut, they would take them under their wing and they would learn from them. And they would follow them until age 30. And at age 30, they would then become the rabbi. Well, Jesus comes on the scene and begins his ministry at around age 30. And so Jesus is on the scene and, and, and people are beginning to think that he is some kind of rabbi, he is some kind of teacher. And so he begins to call his disciples. And there's this interesting passage in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus calls his disciples, and you've heard this story before, it's Peter and Andrew, James and John, they're fishing, and Jesus says, follow me, and I, I, always, I always read this, and I didn't get it until I understood what was going on in, in, in culturally in their education system. What would make guys just follow this guy that came walking along and said, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. I'm not going to follow a guy that says that. If he comes along and says, hey, come follow me, I'll make you rich, okay, I'm in. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm right there. You know, come follow me, and you're going to experience greatness. You know, I, it would have to be something a little bit more enticing. But you have to understand what was going on in first century Judaism to, to kind of get the context here and what's happening. So let's go ahead and read Matthew chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there, verse 18. If not, we have it up on the screen. It says, one day Jesus was walking along the shore beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, fishing with the net, for they were commercial fishermen. Jesus called out to them, come, be my disciples, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and went with them. Okay, I, again, I was like, I, I, why would they do that? Go on in verse 21. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. He called to them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. What would make these four young men leave their family business and follow Jesus? It would be because the rabbi Jesus was saying to them, come and follow me. Because I believe in you. I believe you can do what I can do. And Jesus was saying to them, you're not second best. The world may think you're, you're broken. The world may think you're flawed. The, the, the religious establishment at the time said you weren't good enough. Because remember, these guys didn't make the cut. They were, they were commercial fishermen now. They had been rejected after Bates Affair. They were told they were not good enough by the rabbis. And the rabbis just said, go to the family business, learn the family business, learn the family trade, and away they went. And they were doing that. And here comes this guy named Jesus, who some are beginning to recognize as a rabbi, a great teacher. And he says to them, come and follow me. I will make you fishers of men. 
Come, follow me, Jesus the rabbi, because I believe in you. I believe you can do great things. And that's why they drop their net. That's why they leave their dad. They leave to follow Jesus. Now, obviously, as we read scripture, I'm sure there's a little bit more dialogue that went on between the two of them there. But somebody believed in them. Jesus believed that they had greatness in them. Jesus believed that they had the ability to change the world in which they lived. Because their culture had pushed them aside. Their, their faith group had said, nope, they're not good enough. And yet God chose them. <laughs> chose them to take their, his message to the world. I mean, imagine that. Jesus comes to you. And after you've been rejected, Jesus says, come, I believe in you. Follow me. I mean, we believe in Jesus. We, we trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but yet so many times we forget that Jesus believes in us. That Jesus loves us so much that he died on the cross for us. He redeemed us so that we could come and we could accurately reflect him with our lives. I didn't say perfectly, but to the best of our ability, follow him in obedience. And when we do that, we begin to accurately reflect Jesus. I mean, that's, that's my hope. That's my prayer, is that I just... I just want to accurately reflect Jesus to people. I, I don't want to, I don't want to mis, misrepresent God. I, I don't want to misrepresent Jesus. I, I just want people to see Jesus for who he is. And, and so I'm honest about my mistakes, and I'm honest about my brokenness, that, that hey, I, I don't have it all together, and I don't understand, and yet people come to me as a pastor and go, well, pastor, what does this verse mean? And, and, you know, and sometimes I'm like, well, you know, I don't know. I'm going to need to go read about that. I don't have the Bible memorized right off the top of my head and can do all that. I, I, I sometimes just I feel so inadequate. But thank God, <laughs> Jesus is adequate. You know, Jesus is all we need. Jesus is more than enough. Jesus believes in us, each and every one of us, that we have the ability to accurately reflect his life and his love into the world in which we've been sent. And that's our job and our purpose. So when we go into our our school, when we go into our work, when we're at home, when we're at the grocery store, when we're at Beef O'Brady's or Kroger or wherever it is, we walk in and we have the ability to reflect the life and the love of Christ in us. We have that ability to do that. And I think so many times we forget that. I want us to, to look at another verse, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. And I, I just think it's, I think it's great how, how God works because I think the world thinks it's got to be the biggest, it's got to be the best, it's always got to be the champions, it's always got to be first place. But God takes the leftovers. God takes those that are not good enough. God takes those that are pushed aside. And, and, and like I said, for me, that is a great message because it reminds me that I'm valuable and I have purpose in what God wants me to do. If you look in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 25, it says, This plan of God is far wiser than the wisest human plans, and God's weakness is far stronger than the greatest of human strength. Paul's saying, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. I mean, that encourages me. <laughs> that encourages me to know that, you know what, the world may look at me and think, well, I, you know, 
Jeff, you know, here are your flaws. Just listing them out. And that's just not going to cut it. You know, we're looking for somebody that has these and, and just pushes. But God looks at us and says, you know, you're uniquely gifted. You, each of us, each of us has unique gifts and abilities. And God has placed us in unique situations and unique settings with different people that we have the opportunity to reflect him in our own unique way. We don't have to have all the words to say. We don't have to be the wisest in the room, the prettiest in the room, the biggest in the room, the smartest in the room. You fill in the adjective. God's just called us to be obedient. And he's just taken simple, ordinary people like us, like he did with, with Andrew you know, and Peter and James and John. And he just uses simple people that the world cast off to take the message out and to live the message out in front of people. And it goes on in verse 27. Instead, God deliberately chose those chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. <laughs> I love that. And he chose those who are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Hmm. There is tremendous strength in weakness. There's tremendous strength in humility. When we humbly admit our failings before God and, and, and hold ourselves accountable to others. Don't think more of ourselves than, than we ought to. God does something powerful in us. It's almost like he gets our ego out of the way so that people can see God for who he is in us. And that's what attracts them to Jesus. They see Jesus in you. Yes, they see your flaws. They see your mistakes. They, they, they see your less thans. But then Jesus is elevated in that. And it's powerful. And, and, and our world doesn't get that. Our, our world system today does not, they see power as the strength and it has to be the biggest, it has to be the best, it has to be the strongest. And God, totally opposite. He comes at it from a, a totally different situation or a totally different viewpoint. And then it goes on. Let me read uh, Let me read verse 27 again. Instead, God deliberately chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. He chose those who are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important, so that no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God alone made it possible for you to be in Christ Jesus. Remember, God did that. It's God reaching down to us through Jesus that gives us, <laughs> that gives us salvation. And then, it says, For God alone made it possible for you to be in Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made Christ to be wisdom itself. He is the one who made us acceptable to God. He made us pure and holy and gave himself to purchase our freedom. As the scripture says, the person who wishes to boast should boast only of what? the Lord has done. And that's the great thing. It's what God has done in us and through us. God is going to use us if we're willing and obedient. And we go out and, and, and we will do things in the name of Jesus. We will love people in the name of Jesus. We will give food away in the name of Jesus. We will do backpacks in the name of Jesus. We will, we will do those things. But it's God at work in us. And we're not doing it to bring attention to ourselves. We're doing it to bring attention to God. We're doing it to show people that God loves them. Because through that, there's going to be a relationship that's built. 
there's going to begin to be a conversation that's going to be had. And you will have the opportunity to tell people, to talk to people about why it is you're doing what you're doing. Not only are you showing them the love of Jesus, but it's opening up the door for that conversation for you to tell them why you're doing it and how Jesus loves them. And and that connection begins to take place. And all of us have the ability to do that. All of us are capable of doing that because we have relationships with people. We are relational people. And God has placed you in certain settings. And if you are cognizant of the fact that Jesus is inside of you, if if you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. So as a follower of Jesus, you take the Holy Spirit with you everywhere you go. So when you're at work or Kroger or wherever it is, God is with you. And people are beginning to notice something different about you. They're beginning to notice something inside of you, something that you do, something in your countenance, something that you say, something you do. How you respond is different from the world. And so you're able to begin to have those conversations. And through those conversations, you will begin to have opportunities to tell people about Jesus. Because you've earned the respect by showing them, by just humbly serving and doing. But it's, it's, it's not all about doing it's what God's done through us. It's just obeying. And then we go through that. I want, to, I want to leave you one more verse. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Luke chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. I read this this morning, and uh, I had never read this before. And it, and it just it hit me. And I thought, this, this just ties us all together. It fits perfectly for what we're talking about. Luke chapter 10. Verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, And I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among the snakes and the scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. So in verse 19, Jesus is saying to them, Hey, I've given you authority over these things on earth. You have power over these things on earth. <laughs> okay, so Jesus is saying, I've given you power to do this as my followers, as my disciples. You have power to do this. In verse 20, But... But don't rejoice just because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered as citizens of heaven. Don't rejoice because you have power over the things of this world. Rejoice because God knows your name. And your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And eternity awaits. Heaven awaits. God in heaven knows your name and a place waits for you through your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And, and see, when I read that before, I, I was caught on, on verse 19. I've got power. I've got authority. You know, because we get intoxicated about, with power. That, that We have power over these things. And we do. I mean, Scripture says it. But, but Jesus, in verse 20, but don't rejoice because the evil spirits obey you. You have power over them. Rejoice. Because heaven awaits. Because God knows your name. Because you have been saved through the power of Jesus Christ. And heaven awaits. That is awesome. <laughs> Man, that, that Jesus values me here on earth. That, he, that he, he looks at me and sees my faults and sees everything. And says, I still can use you. Come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Because he still says that today. What Jesus is saying to them here 2,000 years ago still applies to us today. Jesus still comes and says, he looks at each and every one of us and says, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men and women. 
I want to use you to show my love to the world in which you live. And wherever you go, to the best of your ability, accurately try to reflect my life and love through your obedience to me. And when you do that, people will see Jesus. And you will begin to have influence in the world in which you live. Not perfection, but through the power of Jesus Christ you'll have influence. And then, (laughs) Jesus knows your name and heaven awaits. That's beautiful. That's exciting. That that's what should get us fired up. That God knows our name and heaven awaits. And so today I I just come to you and say, hey, we're all broken. We all make mistakes. None of us are perfect. None of us have it all together. And God knows that. Praise God he knows that. And, And he still wants to use us. And he will use us. And he can use us. And God's all about taking second place, third place, fourth place. God's all about taking the losers and using them to do great things in the kingdom of God and great things in the world. We don't always have to be in first place. We don't always have to be the biggest. We don't always have to be the strongest. We don't always have to be the best dressed, the richest, or have it all together. We just need Jesus. And that's enough. It was enough for the disciples to change the world. If it was enough for them, then it's, then it's enough for you and me to go into our world and face what we have to face today. And then what we have to face tomorrow. And God will give us what we need today for today. And then God will give us what we need for tomorrow, tomorrow. And it's just trusting Him obediently in life, step by step, day by day. One of my favorite movies is um, What About Bob? And in that movie with Bill Murray, what about Bob's when you laugh? The whole premise of the movie is baby steps. That's what Dr. Leo Marvin's book was. Here, Bob, I'm going to get you off my back. Read this book. And he reads it. I just baby step. Just baby step to the elevator. Baby step to the curb. Everything was a baby step for him. But as he took each little baby step, his confidence grew. And throughout the movie, you see Bill Murray's confidence grow. And the quote professional Dr. Leo Marvin who wrote the book, his confidence declines. (laughs) Because Bob is taking what's in the book and applying it to his life. And his confidence is growing as he applies the truth of that book to his life. And it's the same for us. Sometimes we just need to take baby steps. We just need to take God's word and and take that first baby step for us and trust God. And I don't know what that looks like. Only you know what that looks like. Because you know where you are in life. You know what you're facing. You know what you're struggling. I mean, maybe you're sitting here today and say, my confidence is lacking in this area. Or I am, I am struggling at home to be the parent I need to be. Or I am struggling in my marriage. Or at my job, I am struggling because I just don't feel good enough. I just don't feel qualified. And if that's you, I just encourage you to turn to Jesus today. Spend some time reading the Word. Spend some time in prayer asking Jesus, God, show me. Do I need to move? Do, what do I need to change? Do I need to do something? Or, do, God, do I need to get out of the way and let you do something in me? And only you can answer that question. Let God do what God has to do in your life. Let Jesus come in and, and do that. And then you just take that first baby step. Just baby step with what Jesus tells you. And then he'll give you the next. And he'll give you the next.
Because God knows your name. God is madly in love with you. He's madly in love with me. And he desires his best for us. And he's just asking us to trust him obediently and follow and take the next baby step. And when we do, we accurately reflect God's life and love. And it makes a difference in the world in which you and I live. You may not see it, but God sees it. And he knows your name. And a place awaits for you in heaven. Let's pray. God, I I thank you that you know our name. That you are madly in love with us. And that you care deeply about our lives. And that you take our brokenness and you use it in powerful ways. God, I thank you for that. And God, I I pray for myself and those that are here this morning that struggle with feelings of inadequacy. That we just don't feel adequate. We just don't feel like we can parent our children anymore. We just don't feel like we're the we're the spouse that our, that our husband or our wife needs. We just don't feel like we're the person at work that can get the job done sometimes. We question our abilities. But God, you've placed us in these settings and these situations. And so you take what we have and you use it. So God, may we not lose sight of that. May remember that May we remember that you changed the world through a bunch of guys that the religious establishment said weren't the best of the best. That their best was second best, according to the religious people at the time. So God, I pray that you meet us this morning right where we are and and challenge us to take that baby step and make the change and follow you and trust you and give you whatever it is that we have and knowing that when we give it to you, you do great things. And it's not by our power, but by your power. And so God, I ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.cornerstone.org or find us on Facebook.